This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Hello, everyone. We have Gary Marcus with us, uh, who's the author of Guitar Hero, among other books. A uh, student of Steven Pinker um, and uh, the, the head of the Center for Language and Music, correct, at NYU. Um, so how many people here have tried and failed to learn a language or uh, a, an instrument? Right. Um, so the subject of this talk is basically how Gary learned to play the guitar at 40. Um, and I want you maybe to like walk us through, like, what was the process of deciding at 40 as a scientist to go into this sort of eyes open uh, and try and both learn an instrument and learn about learning an instrument at the same time? The first thing I should say is that half of the story is about a video game as a gateway drug. So the title of the book, Guitar Zero, is an allusion to a video game called Guitar Hero. And I played this video game when I was 37 or 38 years old, and it was about the seventh or tenth time that I tried to learn something about music in my life. I always loved listening to music. I remember a little blue record player I had that I played over and over again, listening to Peter, Paul, and Mary. So um, I always loved music, but every time I tried, it was a complete, utter disaster. So for example, I discovered a recorder, which is sort of a poor man's flute, in my mom's drawer when I was about mm, 10 years old, and I, I asked if I could take lessons, and my mom brought me to lessons around the corner, and they tried to teach me Mary had a little lamb. And after about two lessons of realizing that I was getting absolutely nowhere, the teacher said, perhaps your talents lay elsewhere, and <laughs> suggested... I can play hot crust buns. On, even that would have probably been over, over my head. Um, and if she had been a different kind of teacher, what she might have said is, well, you have problems with rhythm and timing, and instead of having you play a whole song, let's have you play quarter notes and eighth notes and alternate them, and maybe I would have actually learned something. But I think she was triaging, trying to see who would make the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and who would not, and <laughs> it was pretty clear I was not going to make the symphony orchestra. And so so there, there are different attitudes towards teaching, and the triage one is not at all uncommon, I think, especially in the classical world. Um, so I was triaged. And then there were a few more experiences like that. I don't know if anybody here remembers the Miracle Piano, which you hook up to a Macintosh Plus, and it was basically a typing tutor for piano. And I learned where all the notes were. I had no trouble. And then it got to this point where you had to be able to play the notes for the right amount of time. And again, I was completely stymied. So there was no miracles with the miracle piano. And so that, and then I was trying again a couple of times here or there. And I tried with Guitar Hero. I bought it for the same reason. I always wanted to be a participant, not just a spectator. I love music, but as a scientist, I wanted to kind of understand from the inside. Like I want to understand auto automobile engines we were talking about earlier. Whatever it is around me, I want to understand. I felt like I didn't understand with, with music. And someone said, you got to try Guitar Hero. And so I, I said, okay, I'll try it. And that too was a miserable experience. I don't know if anybody's played the game. It is the dumbest video game I've ever 
seen. <laughs> Right. In Tetris, you have to work out problems of two-dimensional geometry. There's kind of a physics there. You know. Tetris is actually an interesting game. First-person shooters, you develop your attentional abilities. And all you do in Guitar Hero is some colored dots come from the top of the screen. You have a plastic have a guitar. Plastic guitar with colored buttons that match the colored dots. I and mean, this is really not rocket science. Um, there are, in fact, robots that can play this without knowing anything about music and could play it better than I could at first. Um, and so what happens is you play a song like Slow Ride from Foghat. I don't know if you know this from the 70s. And I kept hearing the song over and over because I kept trying to play it. And if you don't play it well, if you press the buttons at the wrong time, then the crowd starts to boo. And eventually, <laughs> this is not a very reinforcing message thing about education. So Although like, if you do play it well, the crowd starts to cheer. I didn't experience that at first at all. <laughs> And then, maybe it's cheering when you walk on the stage and then they see who's actually there. Um, <laughs> and eventually, the word fail comes on the screen at, at a certain point. So that, too, was not a happy experience. And then my wife played a similar game. And at this point, I was 37, I guess, years old. And I, had been, I was interested in Nintendo Wii. I like to tell myself from a cognitive science perspective because it was a different input device and so forth. We could you know, talk about whether that's the real reason I was interested. But anyway, I had a Wii. I was playing video games by myself. And when I discovered that my wife was willing to play a video game, I was like, I'll get out the guitar hero. And she helped me get through the first level by giving me a little bit better feedback than boo and fail and stuff like that. She's like, you're a little late here, you're a little bit early here. And, and eventually I made it through the first song, and I think it was the most reinforcing thing. We were talking about intermittent reinforcement a moment ago. It was the most reinforcing thing in my life that I could actually do something musical. And then I made it through the first couple of levels of the game. I did all the songs on the easy level, all the songs on the medium level. And then I got to the hard level, and you have to relearn what you do. You have to change how you're configuring your fingers. And I was like, you know, maybe I could try a real guitar. And so after that, I was sort of off to the races. It was a gateway drug. And then the other side of it is my day job is studying how children learn language. And the question there is like, well, what happens later in life? And, um, so I've always been interested in these kind of developmental psychology questions ever since I worked with Steven Pinker. And so <laughs> I was able to at least rationalize to myself the reason I was putting all this time into the guitar was I was learning something about the cognitive science. And then after all of that, I finally said, you know, I should write a book about this so that I'll stick to it. So um, one thing I'm interested in is can we break down what it is to actually learn an instrument? Like sure. what are the components of, of learning an instrument? It seems I think in your book you have like a tripartite structure. So in any new skill, there are a few things you might draw on, like motor control things or intellectual things. So I mean, the terrible thing um, about a musical instrument is you have to do all of them. So, so like if you're playing chess, at least you get off easy on the physical dexterity part. I mean, okay, if you're playing speed chess, it helps if you can reach the queen quickly or something like that, but it doesn't really make a difference. But in music, there's an enormous demand, first of all, in your memory. And um, in hindsight, the guitar was not the easiest instrument because it's one of the most demanding, um, just in terms of the logic of the fretboard and where all the notes are. So on a piano, there's this nice, simple pattern that repeats over and over again. So you know, in a day or even in an hour, you can learn where all the notes are, at least, to get started. On <coughs> the guitar, every string is configured differently, and they're all kind of similar but different. And it turns out that that's the hardest thing for the human mind is when you have a bunch of things that are similar but different. You can um, remember back to when you were a child, learn the times table. Like, you have all of these numbers, and it's like, well, there are a bunch of 14s, and there are a bunch of 16s, and it gets very confusing. Well, you have a bunch of Cs and C-sharps all over the, the fretboard, and so that's really demanding. So even before you've learned a first song, just to learn where the notes are 
is a big demand on a kind of brain that isn't set up for it. So you could compare to a computer, you could just upload that stuff. You know, you look on Wikipedia, there's a fretboard. You know, one person uploaded, it stays in the cloud forever, but it doesn't stay in your brain forever. And so even after years, it can be hard for uh, at least an amateur musician to quickly say, you know, where's the C sharp on the fifth string? So you've got that. Then you've got the physical Whereas dexterity. Whereas on a keyboard, you could just point like there. You can just point. It's a lot easier on a, on a keyboard. Um, then there's all of the learning involved in music theory and how the notes relate to one another. There is the physical dexterity. You have to be able to move two hands in coordination, be able to do it really rapidly without any errors. So there's a natural tendency in the human mind for what's called the speed accuracy trade-off. So you can do something faster, you will do it less accurate, or vice versa. If you want to do it more accurately, you slow down. Well, musicians have to overcome that, right? They have to play things very accurately and very fast, and that's not natural for the human mind. There are a lot of ways in which the things that we need to do in order to play an instrument like a guitar just don't come naturally to us. So why is it then that some kids, you know, some... Uh, you know, stoner kids from where I grew up can just like pick up a guitar at 10 years old and by the time they're 13, they're like shredding the, the guitar. Usually what happens is they practice all the time. So one of the things I looked at in the book is why kids are better than adults. And if you look in the developmental psychology literature, there aren't that many things where if a child does something and an adult does something under carefully controlled circumstances, the child is better or even as good as the adult, at least at first. So there's this classic idea of a critical period, and maybe we'll talk more about it later, that says you've got to be really young to do certain things. Well, that's true for perfect pitch. You really do need to be young for that. But almost everything else, there's either no convincing data or the data aren't, aren't even out there and so forth. So a lot of things, it's just that the kids are practicing so much more. They don't have day jobs. They don't have right. mortgages. They don't have children of their own to take care of. They're not taking care of their parents. So they're you know, a responsibility low in the lifespan. Right? And they take advantage of that. Not every kid does. And I think you know, one thing a parent wants is for the child to find the thing that they love, that they will develop a skill. And some just watch television or, or, or you know, check Twitter. But um, for a child that's interested, they can spend an enormous amount of time. Um, I didn't get to interview Jimi Hendrix, but I got to read about him. And I did get to interview Tom Morello, who in some ways I see as the kind of modern heir um, to Jimi Hendrix. And for both of them, the guitar was kind of like an escape. Tom Morello of the band Rage Against the Machine. Tom Morello of the band. Paul Ryan, one of Paul Ryan's favorite bands. Um, <laughs> for those of you who follow the news. Um, he's a fabulous musician. And... For both of them, it was really an escape. Like, I asked Tom Morello, so did you do it for the girls? Or, you know, why did you practice so hard? And he said, first he said no, and then he thought about it, and he said, well, kind of, but not in the way that you think, which was, he said, growing up as the only black kid in Libertyville, I think it's Illinois, he didn't even know how to approach girls. And so this was his escape, was he just spent all his time with a guitar. He started a little bit later, actually. He didn't really start until he was 17. Um, but... For a lot of musicians, they just, it becomes all-consuming. And so if you practice you know, 10 hours a day for six days a week, then eventually you get, or seven days a week. Morello, um, I don't know if you all know this, is a Harvard graduate. He did an honors degree in political science. And while he did this, he practiced as many as eight hours a day um, on the guitar. So he started later than your average 10-year-old. He knew he had to catch up. And he had that kind of ambition and obsession and... So when we talk about this, I think uh, many people in the room, I'm sure, are thinking like, oh, 10,000 hours, right? You just need to like, get to 10,000 hours, kind of an idea popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, um, based on some research. Um, what do you think about this 10,000-hour hypothesis? 
There, there's an element of truth in it, but only an element. So um, the element of truth is, first of all, more practice for most skills makes you better, if it's the right kind of practice. Gladwell doesn't even talk that much about the original idea from that research, which is deliberate practice. So 10,000 hours of me practicing is not going to get me to Jimi Hendrix. So there's a talent element, which I clearly don't have. I don't have a natural sense of timing. Um, and <coughs> that's problematic. Hendrix was you know, the child of a, a singer and so forth and probably had both a genetic and an experiential component. So the 10,000 hours ignores the talent, ignores the kind of practice. So um, deliberate practice is this idea that you want to focus on your weaknesses. So what a lot of musicians do, they get reasonably good, and then they just practice the same riffs over and over again, and they never really grow as musicians. I've seen many, many musicians do this. They don't even know like, why those riffs work or what key they're in. Or, you know, they've just kind of memorized particular things to do with their fingers, and so they can play those seven riffs, but they, don't, you know, they can't really jam with somebody else or help write, write new songs. So you have to focus on your weaknesses. Um, at the limit, if you have a professional coach and you're working on a sport that nobody else has worked on and you have the natural talent, you might be able to do something very good in 14 months. There's actually someone who did the Olympic sport of skeleton. I know you don't know, all know what it is, but um, it's sort of like luge. And somebody went from never having done this sport to under direct supervision from scientists um, being at the Olympics and, and I think placed 14th or something like that in the Olympics um, or maybe placed 6th in the Olympics after 14 months so it also depends what you're trying to learn how many other people have done the thing that you're trying to do and you can do careful studies in for example chess where there's actually a metric so it's hard to exactly answer these questions with music because people don't agree on what the great music is though I can tell you that the Ramones got there after you know a couple months they were playing something new and interesting I don't know if anybody knows Anvil there was a documentary about Anvil raise your hand if you know the band Anvil if you do, it's probably from nice. the documentary. Camera one. Um, yeah. They've been playing for 30 years, right? They put in way past the, the 10,000 hours, and still nobody's ever heard of them. So there's this huge range on talent, on originality. So practice is an absolute prerequisite. And I think my own case shows that if you put the time in, even when you're not talented, you can get somewhere. So I've gotten good enough that I can amuse myself and not frighten my neighbors. And for me, <laughs> that's a major accomplishment. But, you know, I'm not Hendrix. Right. So let's talk a little bit about practice because I feel like one of my worst memories of childhood was like, you know, my mom plunking me down in front of the piano and having to like sit there pretending to, to do what I was, uh, to, was supposed to be doing and then going to my piano teacher having not done it and her being irate. Um, so are there, you know, I, I guess I want to call them like cognitive hacks, like a kind of pre-willpower to get you to want to practice? Um, I certainly. I mean, but this them. is like an emerging area of thought. Like, there's a guy named Brian Wansink who tries to do this around food. You know, he's like, if you can't stop yourself from going to McDonald's on your route home, don't take that route home. And it's easier to make that decision than it is to make the decision not to go to McDonald's once you're already there. And so they've come up with a whole set of these kinds of things. And I'm wondering if there's a, a similar kind of willpower hack. And that's a very good question. I think um, that. A lot of getting good at an instrument is about willpower hacks. There is the sort of external motivation and internal motivation. I mean, you can have someone crack the whip, and that works for some people. That also makes some really good piano players that hate to play piano and never play again. So partly depends on your objective. But if you want to do it for yourself, then you do have to fool yourself into keep practicing. 
So like, my, I'll give you one example. My weakest thing, as I've mentioned, is ry rhythm and timing. And the classic way of dealing with that is to practice with a metronome. I don't know how many people here have practiced with a metronome, um, but most of you <coughs> will probably think that it's kind of tedious, right? Tick, tick, tick. Yeah, it kind of gives me like the PTSD feeling, actually, thinking about it. <laughs> many, you know, every musician is advised never practice without a metronome, which is probably almost good advice. But the problem is, it's so tedious that people don't do it. And so it's just like your McDonald's case, right? You end up eating the burger, you end up playing without the metronome because it's more fun. So what I started doing is playing with a drum machine where you can vary the pattern every time that you play. And if there's one thing the brain likes, well, there are really two things the brain really likes, but one of them is novelty and variation. And so if you can change the, the rhythm every time, that makes it exciting. And so you can keep yourself motivated because you feel like you're learning something new. You're learning to play with something different. And so just doing little things like that, which I think are fairly called hacks, um, can really sustain your own interest. What else did you do to sort of, did you create special calendars? Did you make, you know, another area of thought around this is that if you give your goal to somebody, if you're like public about your goal, then you're more likely to stick to it because there's a sort of social shame aspect. Well, I mean, that in my own personal, I don't recommend you try this at home, but if you do write a book about it and you go out <laughs> on a book tour, there is a you know, large social shame um, aspect. So um, my own unique experience is that I did go out on tour and I got to play with a lot of great musicians and certainly the shame was, was a motivating factor. Um, but one of the things I, I would say is that for other adults who are trying to learn who aren't writing books about the topic, um, that it shouldn't necessarily be your goal, in fact, to play on stage. And a lot of adults, I think, are stymied by thinking, I really love the piano or I love the guitar, um, but I'm afraid to play in front of other people. And they think that that's the only goal, is to play in front of other people. And it's hard for an adult to play in front of other people, unlike a child, because if you're a child and you're making progress, then people applaud your progress each time. But if you're an adult, you get compared to Jimi Hendrix, and you know, it's obvious <laughs> that you're not quite there yet. And so I, I think for adults, it's probably a better motivation to enjoy the progress in itself for yourself than to try and do it out of social shame. This sort of um, child-adult uh, difference is, is actually super interesting because I, I don't think that I quite realize the extent to which adults like get in their way and that that in their own way and that that's actually like kind of the core problem is that if people aren't good at it in a couple of hours like they're like well forget this versus kids who are willing to do something they're terrible at like talking for like a year yeah. <laughs> before they can do anything and you know imagine if you were an, you know an adult trying to learn a language and you just had to like say random words and non-words for a year you know you'd never do it a adults do often get in, in their own way the cruelest thing, I didn't put this in the book, but that I heard was somebody who was a music teacher and her husband offered to get her a t-shirt saying, I'm your music teacher, not your therapist. And I, I think that a lot of adults get stuck. They think they're not good enough, they're not practicing hard enough, and they get so caught up in the meta dialogue that they're not just sitting there practicing. I think that is one of the advantages of kids is they're just sort of happy to be there. It's like the old joke about the optimist and the pessimist. Right. And the optimist is, you know, there must be a pony in here somewhere. Um, the, 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 the optimist is like, if I keep playing guitar, you know, I'm going to find something. And a lot of adults, especially if they're starting later in life, don't have that sense of optimism. Maybe they tried as a kid and um, they gave up for whatever reason. The worst thing for adults, I think, is to compare themselves to when they were a kid. So they'll be like, I used to be able to play piano better, and they get stuck on that. Yeah. And I think the best teachers really do serve partly as a therapist, and they realize that you're stuck on that, and they, they kind of free you up. So adults do definitely get in their own way by being too reflective about what they're doing instead of just doing it. 
So, but you didn't get a teacher for like the first six months or something, right? This is true. And this, I mean, this is sort of one of the, you know, social stigma kind of thing. So I didn't get a teacher because I thought I would be wasting a teacher's time. Um, I really genuinely thought that. So for about six months... You know you pay them, right? I, I, yeah. Well, um, I can think of a joke I shouldn't tell them now. But um, I, I realized that I paid them. But even so, I mean, you don't want to pay someone to do something that they find deeply unpleasant or you have to pay them more or something like that. I, I don't know. Um, I just didn't think I was worthy. And then when I finally did actually go, the teacher didn't think I was that bad. I described the passage in, in the book where he basically um, gives me a report card and, and you know, basically I passed to my utter astonishment. Of course, I had been practicing by six months. Um, he was maybe comparing me to people who had just shown up. I don't know. But he didn't think that there was anything in my technique that was going to make it impossible for me to play. He even thought my sense of rhythm <coughs> wasn't particularly um, notably bad. And in retrospect, I mean, after that point, I started interviewing a lot of teachers as, as part of the, the book process. And I realized that there are teachers that very much vary. So the reason that I didn't go to a teacher was mostly because of the bad experience, especially with the recorder teacher, but I had a couple others like that. And there are teachers out there that don't want to deal with you if you're not good and they make you feel bad. Um, but there are teachers that love teaching adult beginners, that love that kind of, you know, glint in your eye when you, you know, you first play a song or you first, you know, learn to improvise and you're actually doing something. So there are, there are teachers that live for that and really enjoy it. I talk um, some in the book about my teacher now, Terry Roach. I don't know if anybody knows the Roaches from the 70s, a kind of influential folk uh, rock, sort of hard to classify group. They had the album of the year in 1979. So Terry Roach um, made it well, she became a touring musician when she was like 15 or 16 years old with her sister. Um, and they, they really hit it big, and they played on Saturday Night Live, and they toured for years and years. And then she kind of had enough of that, and she took up piano at like the age of 35. She'd been playing guitar. Um, she originally had no formal training. She didn't know like the names of the chords or anything. She just kind of played, and she watched other people. But she had the experience of learning complicated jazz theory at the age of 35, and really you know, subtle things about harmony. Uh, and she fell in love with that. And that makes her a great teacher, because she has the experience both of being really good at something and also the experience of being a novice at something. And that's led her to reflect a lot. And Well, how do you learn something? A lot of times when people look for a teacher, they look for the best musician they can find. You know, the guy who played in the famous band sat, sat in with Dave Matthews once or something like that. But the guy who sat in with Dave Matthews may have never thought at all about how to teach the material. And so they might be able to sh show the advanced player some neat fingering trick. But if you're a beginner, you want someone that can look at your posture, for example, and, and can look at what you're doing <coughs> with rhythm, not be bored because they've seen someone else have that problem before, but instead be like a car mechanic and looks at you and says, well, I've seen this problem before. This is what this problem is like. This is a good diagnosis, and this is how to work with it. So let's go back to advantages we have over children. Um, they, I mean, we have a lot of explicit knowledge. Like, we can learn things analytically about the way that chords work, about the way that notes work, music theory. Um, how do you actually apply those things? And, and maybe give us a couple of the, the things that were most helpful that you learned along the way on the kind of explicit knowledge, either out of the science or out of the music theory. 
Um, well, the first thing I'll, I'll tell you about is I went to a summer camp with a bunch of 11-year-olds, and the original idea was to just... Totally not creepy, though. <clears throat> not creepy. <laughs> this is, I'm, this is, I'm Jerry Sandusky sentence dated, but I don't like that. But no, it wasn't like that. Um, so I went um, to the summer camp uh, with 11-year-olds, and I, I pleaded for a couple of months with the mission control at the camp to see if I could go, and I couldn't get a, a, an answer back. And finally they called, and they said, sure, you can go, you can sit in if you want, um, but if you really want to get the experience... You shouldn't just watch. You should you should join a band, and and I had only been playing for a few months at this point. And the, the director, camp director Tobias Hurwitz, follows that up and says, and of course you want to play bass because there are never enough bass players. So the minute we got off the phone, I started looking on Amazon for basses, which I had never played before. Um, so I, eventually, I went to the camp, and the first day was like being on a softball team. You're like, pick me, pick me, pick me. Um, and eventually, some of the kids were gracious enough to to let me join. <laughs> and what I could see right away was the kids that had been there before had much more um, dexterous fingers than I had. They could, they could play much faster than I could play. But what I also found over the course of the week is that we had to write a song. And um, there's no covers at, at this uh, particular camp. It was all about creating your own song. And by Friday, everybody brings their parents. And this applied to me. The camp was in my hometown of Baltimore. And talk about social shame, my mom was going to come. <laughs> <laughs> Even worse, my wife was going to come down from New York to watch the whole thing. So I had, I had that motivation. Um, but what I discovered is there were ways I could sort of help the ball club. So I, I thought of myself like a 40-year-old pitcher who no longer has the heat but knows a little bit about, you know. <laughs> Got a great knuckleball. Exactly. Yeah. Had, had developed a knuckleball. And so for, for me, that was I actually knew something from listening to so many songs and reflecting a bit on how they worked about song structure. So basically, one of the kids came up with a riff, which I probably would not have been able to do, but I was able to sort of seed it in context and find fun things. Like I, I made a fun intro. One of the kids was a great piano player, and so he had this classical piece he was working on, so I got, and we were going to do this crazy heavy metal kind of song, so I had the, the kid who was good on piano play a little riff, and everybody thinks it's going to be a piano recital, which is not really the tenor of the camp, and we were the first people to go on, and then the drummer crashes in, and then we're all playing these, these grungy power chords and stuff like that, and so I was able to find things that we could do to make the song you know, have, have a kind of recognizable structure to adults by, by using this sort of more abstract knowledge. And then another way um, that what I know about music theory helps me, and I, as a sort of person, a scientist with mathematical aptitude, the, the theory is the stuff that I get more easily than the, the fingering. Um, I immediately took to improvising. So unlike most people who learn to play guitar, I don't really learn a lot of songs. I figure there are other people who can play them better. What I really enjoy is improvising, and because I know something about the theory, I can do a pretty good job you know, I'm going to put that in quotes or something. A surprisingly good job, given my, my background, um, making up stuff new because I understand harmonic theory and things like that. Can you uh, give me, like, one fun way of understanding harmonic theory? Because I feel like sometimes, you know, if you're listening to music with musicians, they're like, oh, that was a great chord change. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means, you know? Um, well, they probably mean that's something that fits, but I wouldn't have thought of. And different musicians might respond differently. You're probably more likely to get that response out of a jazz guy than a rock guy. So rock guys tend to play the same chords kind of over and over again. I mean, there's, there's some variation. There's progressive rock where there's a lot more experimenting. In jazz, kind of the name of the game is to come up with new things. 
to find something that fits there in a way that other people didn't imagine. So music theory kind of gives you a set of rules about what fits together, but they're bendable rules, just like in writing. So people tell you, you know, always write in full sentences, and you and I both write professionally. We know that there are occasions when you don't want a um, full sentence for effect. And so um, it, it's like dropping that phrase that nobody expected in that spot you know, everybody can recognize that it's a phrase. It's not like you've invented, you know, a partial sentence, but, you know, you've picked a spot for it. So I think when, when a jazz guy says that, it's that you've done something unconventional nobody's thought about before um, and fits really well, really well. And it's surprising because people are actually much better at making up new melodies than they are at making up new chord progressions. So um, there's actually some scientific research that suggests that it's easy to make up new melodies within constraints, basically because in a linear line, if you stick within a key, the notes fit together relatively well. But when you have chords going on, you, you sort of have more constraints. You've got at least three notes um, in each chord, and you're trying to tie them together. And um, there's sort of a little bit less free variation there. and It's a little bit more complicated. And it turns out that even these jazz guys, most of the time, the chord progressions are known in advance, and there are certain limited rules for substituting. This thing is roughly equivalent to this thing in this particular way. And so someone can really groove on the unexpected there if they know the work. Now, the thing about jazz is most people don't know the rules, so most people don't listen to that much jazz, especially free jazz, where it's hard to even figure out what the rules are. Right. And one of the things about what we like about music is it's really a mix of two things, familiarity and novelty. They sound sort of paradoxical, like they're opposites. But the brain gets a reward for things that are familiar. So a steady drumbeat gives you that reward for familiar, um, but we like novelty too. So you vary it and, and you get this reward um, for novelty. Music is great about letting you have both at once. So you can constantly have something that you recognize that makes your brain feel happy. Hey, I'm clever, I get it. And then there's something new. Hey, I'm learning something. So if you get both of those at once, you really like what's going on. So your day job is to work on language. Um, one of the great shames of my life is that I've never learned Spanish, even though my dad's from Mexico. If you would have heard it if you were at the, the session last night. I did. Um, and, you know, are, are there, are, how similar are the tasks of learning a language as an adult, learning music as an adult? Um, I think they're fairly similar. They both require an enormous amount of hard work. They both do involve an acoustic thing that as an adult you may never get exactly right, so accent or perfect pitch, things like that. Um, there are documented cases of some adults learning new languages natively. For a long time, we thought that was literally impossible. There are some people, they might have the right genes, they might have the right social context and so forth, but it is possible. Um, they both require a huge amount of labor because you either have to learn the vocabulary of a language or kind of the vocabulary of the musical genre that you're trying to learn. So they both make a lot of demands on human memory, which is not our strong point. So we ha we're very good at pattern recognition um, compared to machines, but we're terrible at memory compared to machines. Um, and language demands, just like music does, a, a lot of memorization. There's sort of no way around that, at least yet. You can imagine you know, certain kinds of brain implants someday, but, but for now, you just have to do the hard work. What about a brain training or some of these? Are there, do you believe in any, like there's these software packages, sometimes like NPR will give away if you uh, <laughs> donate money. Do you believe that any of these things actually work to give your brain any kind of advantage? They might. As best I can tell, 
they tend to be narrow. So the hardest pro problem in education, and this applies to adult education as well as child education, is what we call the transfer problem. So you teach somebody something in a classroom or a laboratory, and they understand it fine, and then you take it out into the real world, and they don't, they don't use it in the real world. And this is true for a lot of these brain training things. So you do arithmetic puzzles on your Nintendo or something like that. That doesn't necessarily help you with the next problem over. So I think the struggle in education, whether we're talking about kids or adults, is to find ways of getting people to learn new things that are flexible in, in ways that are flexible enough to be able to apply them in other domains. And I would say that our understanding of that is still limited, just like our understanding of medicine is in a lot of ways still limited. Our understanding of what it takes to get people to really apply things in a general way, it still needs work. Earlier we were talking about that you like to think about music as a technology, and obviously I'm a technology writer, and I was trying to, this, this whole time, I've been trying to think, what, what does he mean by that? Can you give us, give us a sense of what you mean when you say music is a technology? Well, so there's an obvious sense, right, which is there are lots of technologies used in music. Um, like, you know, the electric guitar radically changed music. The microphone radically changed music. Um, but there's a less obvious sense, which is things like harmony are technologies. So if you go back a couple thousand years, when people sang, everybody sang in unison, or, you know, there's either one voice or many voices singing the same note. If you listen to Gregorian chant, that's what's going on. And then somebody had the insight that two different people could sing two different notes, and they could sound good together. Not all pairs of notes sound particularly good together, and that's kind of what harmony theory is about. But until that point, that just wasn't part of the musical game. So it's part of every bit of music, or almost every bit of music that we hear now. And like the one counterexample I can think of is there was a Gregorian chant song by Enigma that was popular yeah. in 2000. Yeah, but if you go yeah. back and listen to it, they have tons of harmony added in. So there's a, you know, there's a core line running through it of, of non-harmonic, of, of, of you know, singing in unison Gregorian chant. And then they have like sen sexy French singers with a close microphone. And, you know, they've, they've got synthesizers and they've thrown every modern technology into it against the Gregorian chant. I have nothing against Gregorian chant. Some people may listen to it a lot, but most people don't. I mean, it, most people listen to it for a little while. They hear that song, they get an you know, obsession for a week or something, but it, do it doesn't stick. So almost every bit of music that we listen to now has harmony and also steady percussion. And there's lots of music historically that didn't have one or the other of those. But these are ideas that take off like the iPhone, right? Once somebody discovers that, hey, you can sing two notes at the same time, someone else says, maybe you can sing three notes. And, you know, and over a period of 400 years, they worked out the mathematics of when you could do this. And then suddenly you have like Simon and Garfunkel. Well, Simon and Garfunkel just wouldn't have existed 1,500 years ago because people didn't understand that you could do this thing of, of, of having harmony. So that's one of my favorite examples of the way that music technology, in a way that floats beneath consciousness, we don't even wear. And then I'll just extend that one more bit, which is the 12-bar blues is a structure that you would all recognize. Some of you will have heard of, and it's fundamental to lots and lots of rock and roll, at least in some minor variation. Well, that's a technology that built on harmony. So 12-bar blues refers to a structuring of particular chords that relate to each other in a particular way that actually alternates this novelty and familiarity. So you start off, you give people a bunch of chords that gets familiar, they get the reward for familiar, then it switches to novelty and they get the reward for novelty and then it goes back and it goes back and forth. And in a particular way, all the musicians know it and it's like, it's a magic formula to get people to have these two rewards at the same time of novelty and familiarity. And it's only like 100 years old. It's used everywhere, but it's very, very recent. So there are lots of things we don't quite realize that are sort of 
part of the, the technology of music. I think people get confused when they talk about the evolution of music. They think because music is what it is now that it was always that way and this must be the thing that's evolved in their brain. But I think of musicians, as, you know, the best musicians, as being more like Steve Jobs than Darwin. So you know, one picture of the evolution of music is it's natural selection and, or it's sexual selection. You know, the best musicians, the ones who got the best mates. We can talk about that theory if you like. But another model, the one that I think is right, is that musicians are more like Steve Jobs who says, well, how does the human mind tick and how can I build something that will tickle the human mind? So he was, Jobs was better at building a portable music player that people could actually use and therefore enjoy and that's why it took off. Same thing, there were lots of other mobile smartphones. I had some of them like the, the Palm Pilot, but they just weren't as well developed to tickle the, the human brain. The best musicians are, are effectively, if not consciously, reverse engineering the human mind, saying, how can I create a mood or an emotion in, in, that, in my listener? Huh. That's fascinating. Um, why don't we open up a, a little bit uh, to the audience? Understanding learning. Um, Did, uh, do you want to repeat it? As he said, um, that music is incredibly complicated, so why pick such a hard topic for, uh, for, for the, your lens on learning? Most of my life, I've, I've tried to do things that I'm good at. And part of the project was actually to see if I could do something that it was not good at. So the natural tendency in life is for us to do things that we get positive feedback for. And that's not a bad strategy. I mean, Michael Jordan was you know, good at shooting baskets, and he got better and better at it by practicing a lot. Um, and I had a natural analytic tendency that made me into a scientist, and I, I enjoy that. But it can also make us sort of unbalanced in a particular way. So we only do the things that we're good at, even when there are things that we're not good at that we enjoy in some way. So I knew I was never good at music, and I knew it was going to be hard, and I could tell that right away. But I did always feel like music was a really important part of my life. So like, the minute I had a disposable income, I started going to Tower Records and buying CDs. Um, I always really had this passion for it, and I decided... I guess at a certain point that one shouldn't exclusively do the things that one's good at if one wants to have a sort of balanced um, slice of human experience. And it, I mean, it's been wonderful for me, not just because I've gotten better at the instrument, but also because like, I've made lots of new friends who are musicians, and I never really knew musicians, and I get a sort of different perspective on, on learning about the world. So I think it's all well and good to try to choose things that, that are naturals for us, but I think it's good to do at least one or two things that you're not natural at. Um, not with the aspiration that you're going to be a concert pianist or a concert violinist, but just to understand a little bit about what that other thing is, is about. Now, in hindsight, I might have chosen the ukulele instead of the guitar because it's laid out more um, logically. I could have focused on the rhythm without worrying so much about the chords and where the notes are. So, I mean, I don't think you have to do the hardest version, and I didn't try to play an instrument where the embouchure was important, or violin where a sense of pitch was absolutely critical. So, I mean, I wasn't completely crazy in doing the hardest version. But I think there is a kind of reward in understanding something that, that you love, but that is not a natural for you. But what about the, the actual process of using that as a way to look into the science of learning? I mean, that you could have picked something that has less elements well, I mean, there are lots of experiments on easy things that people do in a lab in five minutes. So, 
you have people memorize a pattern, they press a few buttons, and they're not quite aware of it. You can ask, well, how did they master this pattern in the context of the lab in five minutes? But the thing that I really care about most deeply, I suppose, is language acquisition, and it's not like that at all. The laboratory experiments aren't capturing the, the richness of this complicated thing. Music, of course, is like language in certain ways, like they're both hierarchical structures. You build larger things out of smaller elements. They're, they're both kind of generative systems, as Tomsky would describe. And so music, in some ways, is a better stand-in for language. Um, it's not the only system like that, but they both have this kind of incredible richness that you can use in so many domains. That's great. Maybe let's uh, go right there in the green shirt. I was curious, uh, the Beatles at LSD rave and the drugs there, do you think the Ritalin generation is an identifiable so glad drug? You in terms of learning and music? Um, I don't really, I'm not sure my finger is on that pulse. I will say that there are lots of kids today that are really passionate about music that I encountered um, at this camp. I think they were a little bit too young to be drug users, um, I hope. Um, and what amazes me about these kids is they know the Beatles and they know the most contemporary stuff. They don't know all of the Beatles, but they sort of know um, the greatest hits from, from, from that older generation of music, and they know the greatest hits. And they, they, I mean, these kids, are, I guess, are music geeks, but they really know their history in a way that, that astonished me. I can't really speak to their, to their pharmaceutical use. I'm also blown away on the kids' music score um, by like the, the, the growth of the kind of bass-heavy headphones and the growth of this music dubstep. Does anyone know this? It always sounds like whoop, 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 whoop. and like you, you're going to hear it from kids sooner or later. Uh, and it's the first music form where I'm just sort of like, whoa, I have no, what is that? Like, turn that noise off, you know? Uh, and, I, and I'm just like, oh, I'm getting old, you know? But um, so I, oh, I'm expecting a child in December, the end of December, and I've been thinking a great deal about this question about sort of musical taste and what it will be like. I will be 42 years older than, than my son, um, and so I think about this a lot. My dad and I have almost identical musical tastes. Let's go right here. Oh, and you're going to be next up there in the top. I'm Danielle Weiss. I'm a physician. Um, I had a two-tier question. One is I remember hearing about if you go to sleep listening to you know, classical music, you'll remember what you studied better. Curious about that. And then also, could you consider music as something that's not auditory, like vibration? So maybe that sound that you're saying, you're, you're feeling it in your body. Is that music? So the answer to the first question, I would say, is there's no real good data that I know about music helping consolidate during sleep. And there's the famous playing Mozart to your baby, which I will not be doing, which was actually invented by a politician rather than a scientist. Zell Miller, I think is his name. He was, I think, the governor of Georgia at the time. And he, he sent out Mozart CDs as kind of a publicity stunt to, to I don't know, all the people in Georgia or something like that. Um, but the, the data on that are really weak. So we do have data that suggests that kids can actually pick up some music inside the womb. Um, but that doesn't mean that they get anything long-term out of it. Um, and there's some question about whether you know, too much loud music might actually be detrimental. We don't really have the data. So I wouldn't, play, um, I wouldn't go out of my way to play Mozart in the womb, and I wouldn't go out of my way to play it during sleep, although there are a bunch of new data showing that how important sleep is to memory consolidation. So it's not impossible. Um, and speaking of memories of consolidation, the second part of your question was vibration. Oh, that makes me think of um, Evelyn Glennie, who is a percussionist who lost hearing, I want to say early in childhood, I can't remember exactly when, 
four or five, um, at, at age four, um, and it, you know, plays with all the major symphonies and so forth. And she plays exclusively through vibration. So um, she is certainly able to use vibration as a substitute uh, for music, or substitute for auditory music, I guess would be a more careful way of saying that. While we're getting that question up there, I was going to play some dubstep, if I can. Ooh, can you guys hear it? If it squelches, it'll just add to the effect. I'm hoping it'll get to a wub in a second. Or it might just be this forever, which is why this music is horrible. There you go. Hear that wub? And that? Anyway. So I won't... I won't profess to loving dubstep, though um, it's clearly a use of technology in music, but I think one of the discoveries in the last 20 years, let's say, in music, growing technology, is that you don't need instruments to make music, that, that people will recognize rhythms made of you know, arbitrary sounds like car horns and things like that. <laughs> um, doesn't mean it's my cup of tea, but I think it's interesting, the flexibility of the system. Hi, my name is Trisha. I'm with KPBS, but this is a personal question, actually. I have two children. They're both in a Spanish immersion program, and we listen to music a lot at home, but they haven't actually taken music lessons. My daughter's showing a little interest in guitar, but will that help them in that part of their brain development? Will learning a musical instrument help them even more with their language, or will it maybe overkill or be even too complicated for them at a younger age? There's definitely data that suggests that kids that are better at music are better at language, and kids that are better at language are better at music. Um, the one caution that I would put is um, that that's correlation, not causation. So we don't know for sure that that isn't that the kids who are, say, naturally auditorily gifted are drawn to both. The other thing I will say, though, is I think learning a musical instrument is one of a number, small number of ways in which kids can learn the value of self-discipline and the value of working really hard at something and getting better at it. So I actually learned that by learning to ride a unicycle in college. But, you know, so you can learn it <laughs> in different ways. Did you go to Reed College? No. It, it's her, I went to Hampshire College, um, <laughs> where, where there's often been, been many unicyclists. But um, I think that the mere process of starting something that seems overwhelming and complicated, applying yourself and getting good at it is an incredibly valuable skill. So... Um, if your child wants to learn a musical instrument, certainly I would encourage them. I don't reach the point of saying if they don't like it, that you should force them to do so. Um, and we'll see how things turn out with my own child in a few years. Um, but I think that uh, th- there's, there's, reasonable, there's reason to believe that developing a fine ear for music might help you with languages later, but I can't promise that it's the case. Um, you mentioned that uh, music's made up... in well, playing the guitar especially is made up of dexterity, um, muscle memory patterns, but then learning the theory and the fretboard being an uncommon and much different from the piano. It's not laid out. That um, My question to you is the guitar is something that is infinitely scalable in terms of its uh, complexity on the fretboard. Uh, um, did you actually just choose to go in standard tuning? Did you choose an open tuning that would have made it dead easy and then you could have concentrated on those other things? It's... That was your choice, so did you choose the most difficult path? And also, what is tuning a guitar? I mean, I know, I kind of know, but I mean, just to sort of explain... I'll answer his question before I answer your question. Um, So there's two senses of tuning a guitar. One is you choose by fiat 
that a particular set of notes are going to be the notes when you play the strings when they're open. And most people play what he's calling standard That means open, no fingers on any. Yeah, so no fingers on any of the frets. And so um, there is something called standard tuning, which seems to descend from from Spanish guitar, that almost everybody does. Um, And so you're just making sure, well, maybe that's uh, oversimplification. Um, Almost everybody starts with, let's say, but maybe shouldn't for the reasons you're pointing out. and so you're just trying to tune this note to E because that's what everybody agrees on. But you don't have to. You could choose to tune this one to D rather than E or turn it um, to D sharp rather than E and so forth. And when you do that, the patterns that you get um, change or the, the, the set of sonic possibilities change. So Joni Mitchell is someone who was famous for playing around a lot with changing the tunings. Um, Ry Cooter famously taught Keith Richards to do this. And that changed a lot of the, the musical possibilities that Keith Richards was aware of. Um, and if I had to do it over again, I might have played in, say, open D tuning to, to um, simplify all of this. There, you know, there's kind of tradition and there's what's easy to learn. I can see a real argument for, for what you're suggesting, where you do what's called an open tuning and then you have um, a particular chord that you get that's a major chord just by, all this, by strumming all the strings at once without holding anything down. There, there are trade-offs involved, but I can certainly see the potential merits in, in what you're describing. And, and just as an analogy for those who didn't quite follow the detail, if you know the Dvorak keyboard, where all the keys are permuted in a different way, it's sort of like, why does everybody start with a QWERTY keyboard instead of the Dvorak keyboard? And the answers for that are not entirely great. Right. Just tradition. Tradition yeah. is the first one. I mean, there's some argument about what part of sonic space you get to explore given um, the standard tuning and how well it helps you to learn standard songs, but they're not great arguments. The video game Guitar Hero clearly isn't meant to teach anyone to play guitar, but isn't there some sort of video game that is designed to teach you how to play, and did you try that? There are several versions now that are better than what was available when I started. So um, There's one that's not great, which is Rock Band, which is... um, a kind of competitor to Guitar Hero introduced in Rock Band 3 a version where you could play with a real guitar. And unfortunately, the user interface just isn't that good. So it demands that even the beginner be able to play without looking at the guitar at all. And that's just not realistic for a beginning guitar. So you see a representation of what notes you're supposed to play, but you have to be able to like find the sixth fret or the third fret or the ninth fret very quickly without looking at the guitar. And there's some feedback if you get it wrong and so forth. But I don't think many people have actually learned from that. I think if you're already an expert guitar player, it's a good way to practice a riff and to, to do it quickly. Um, there, there's a competitor... Um, I had a name in my head and I just lost it, um, which is a little bit better at doing that. I think is more thoughtfully designed. Um, you can run this thing that I can't think of on, on the Xbox and so forth. Um, there's still some issues of, of sort of how you wean people from looking. It's sort of like um, touch typing, where to get really good at it, you have to stop looking at the keyboard. But there is, you need some transitional period where you do look at the keyboard. And I don't, I don't think anybody has completely mastered the dynamics of, of teaching that yet. 
Unfortunately, that version of Rock Band didn't take off. I was hoping that it would because it would get more people to build the technology better. And I think there may have been a conclusion that there's not enough money to be made. In. It's, in principle, I think it's a great idea. I think video games can keep you in that place, I guess we were talking about yesterday, where you succeed some of the time but not all of the time and you're well motivated. So I think video games can, in principle, be a great way to teach people um, at least the mechanical side of music. The other objection I have to the tutoring systems I've seen out there is they just teach you patterns of notes, but they don't teach you anything about like how they relate to a scale, for example. They don't give you any theoretical stuff. So they do tend to produce people or might tend to produce people that have memorized patterns but don't really know how to use that music in another context. So I think it can be done, but it hasn't probably been done yet. You have a name well. for this process, though, where you're looking at the keyboard and then like, it becomes the explicit to explicit, implicit... Um, Right. Uh, transition. Proceduralization, I think you call it, right? Yeah, so I, I didn't invent it. But, um, so cognitive psychologists talk about explicit memory and implicit memory or declarative and procedural memory. So at first you know something in an abstract way, you can articulate it, but if, especially if it's something like music that you have to do quickly or solving a Rubik's Cube, um, which is something I did many, many years ago. Um, if, if you do something like that, to do it well, you can't be sitting there thinking about each step all along the process. You have to make a transition between the abstract knowledge of something and the technical knowledge. We call it muscle memory, but really it's in your brain and your spinal cord. It's not really in your muscles. Um, but you have to make that translation. Some of the best musicians keep both, and they really can describe in abstract terms what they're doing. So Pat Metheny, who I had the good fortune to interview, knows all of the music theory in a really deep and technical way. Um, but he can sit there and do the fast things with his fingers. And he says he needs a lot of practice to do it. It doesn't come naturally. But he can make the translation between um, in this sort of phenomenal way. There are musicians, um, especially like in a bar band, who have just memorized these particular songs, and they can't really explain why they're doing it, how it works, and that means that they might not necessarily be able to create something new out of it. And then there are geniuses sort of in between, like Paul McCartney, who doesn't know a lot of music theory, but somehow abstractly in his gut knows it well enough to be able... Um, to apply it very well. Huh. So I'm going to take one more question. We have a little bit of extra time, so I'm going to get you to preview your next book after this, uh, our last question. Uh, Jody Roseman from Delmar. And um, I have a question about how all of this impacts the aging process of our brains. So I try to uh, learn guitar in Spanish um, as a way to... To learn guitar in Spanish or no, and Spanish? No, and Spanish. No, no. And Spanish as a way, uh, because I don't yeah. do crosswords or Sudoku or all of those things that they encourage seniors to, and I have 25 years on you, so I'm thinking about how to keep these brain cells going. Um, does this really work for older people in terms of, does the frustration overcome the benefit of trying to learn guitar and a foreign language to keep your brain kind of going? And do you kind of recommend that? I mean, I don't want to promise it's going to stab off Alzheimer's, which is, I think, you know, what a lot of people are hoping. There's a chance that it will. The data just aren't clear enough now. I think one of the reasons to do it is actually for happiness. So there's, um, I end uh, Guitar Zero, the book, um, by talking about the science of um, eudaimonia, which is basically the long-term pleasures that we have as opposed to the short-term pleasures. So anybody can go to a restaurant and have the short-term pleasures. But some recent data suggests that the people who are happiest are those who balance the short-term pleasures with long-term pleasures. And one of the ways of getting long-term pleasures is to develop a new skill. And so for me, one of the reasons to, to keep doing it is because I have that satisfaction of developing a side of me that isn't naturally good. And I think ultimately it's probably better to do it for that. And if the other stuff comes, then you know it's a bonus. 
um, before you uh, uh, talk about your next book, um, this is like, you don't oftentimes like point this out in popular science books, but these are all like the notes back here and the references. And so I feel like when you have written a book, like I have, like we both have, like this is like very impressive. And it's something that you wouldn't necessarily notice, but is worth noting as we talk about your next book, which is um, about how the human mind is crappy. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. That was the last one, actually. Oh, that, oh, the previous oh, sorry, one. Sorry, so, no, what's the, what's the, the so next one? There is? was a book called Kluge, um, which is a, uh, about the limits of evolution. So there's an idea in evolutionary psychology that our brains are optimally evolved according to the, the needs of our ancestors. And it's a vast oversimplification. And to put it in a nutshell, um, the reason it's an oversimplification is that evolution can't start over with new genes willy-nilly just because they would be better. So an engineer could look at some problem and say, this solution is just never going to get further. So we're building a ladder. We want to get to the moon. We're not going to be able to build a, a bigger ladder to get to the moon um, and start over and let's find some other technology like rockets. But evolution is always tinkering with the genes that are already there. And so that means that the solutions that we have are kind of a combination of what would be best and what's available given the set of genes that were uh, there in any particular part of evolutionary history. And so our memory, for example, is not ideal. I mean, it's very far from ideal. And I think that I can trace this to particular facts about our evolutionary history. So Kluge was about the limits of the human mind, but there are some things we do well. And so my penance for writing that book is the next book, which is going to be about the few things that human beings can still do well relative to machines. So why is Watson that runs on all these clusters of machines and has the entire Wikipedia on board and a lot of the internet on board still not as good at, say, understanding a story as a human being, right? Watson is this very dedicated technology that can answer questions about things that the answers wind up being titles of Wikipedia pages. It's great at that. <laughs> and that means it's the best at Jeopardy. Even human beings, you know, the best human beings can't beat it. But you would never trust Watson uh, to sum up a news story for you. Um, you would never trust it to, to digest complicated things. I mean, it's getting better and better, but it doesn't have that ability to really understand what's going on. It's a limited ability. Or you look at, there was a New York Times story recently um, about this thing that discovered by Google that seemed to be able to recognize cats. So I call it the Google cat detector. They trained it on 10,000 computers. YouTube with, is no, YouTube one, stills. 1,000 one computers with 16,000 cores total um, on a million or 10 million YouTube videos. And one neuron, it's a kind of artificial neural network, seemed to recognize cats. And there was a lot of media attention. Kind of a rough face. There's some whiskers. There's ears that look like that. And so they can say, this is the computer's essential mental model of this thing, which is essentially this and whiskers. And you're like, now, if you read more carefully, you'll discover that the second most common thing on YouTube is cat videos. So it's not <laughs> surprisingly, or pet videos. So it's not totally surprising that it was able to find a cat. But the other thing the news story says is it's 70% better than any of its predecessors. But if you read the paper, it's still on a sample of 20,000 images it has to recognize. And they always sort of put them in the center of the image so it's as easy as possible and you know, there's not too much shadow going on or whatever. Um, even then, it gets 15.8% correct. Well, if you had a child that could only recognize 15.8% of it, you would be concerned, right? <laughs> so the question is, why can we still do certain things 
very well that machines can't. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of things, you know, it's John Henry, and, you know, we were way behind. So ch we've lost chess, now we've lost Jeopardy. And in the end, I, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to be too optimistic and say there are going to be some things that machines will never catch us on. But why are there some things that we're still better at? And, you know, how, how might we build the next generation of AI? So that's what the next book will be about. That's excellent. Gary Marcus, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.